0: Is changing the nature of work before our very eyes. From the service industry to the tech sector, it's more important than ever that we begin to rethink how we prepare for the workforce. That requires rethinking education, training, skills, and yes, thinking itself. In this episode of Hardly Working, I'm delighted to be joined by journalist and acclaimed science writer Annie Murphy Paul to discuss how we can tap into our surroundings and our own bodies in order to think about and understand the complex world around us. We discuss the insights offered in Murphy's latest book, The Extended Mind, such as why thinking of the brain as a computer is problematic, the social aspects of learning, and how we can make a world that works with rather than against the kind of thinking our brains are evolved to do. I hope you find this discussion to be both insightful and directly applicable to your own life and work. Annie Murphy-Paul, thank you for joining us on Hardly Working.
1: It's a pleasure to be here, Brent. Thank you.
0: Wow. What a great book that we've got a conversation to have about today. Before we get into that, though, I'd like you to just talk to us a little bit about yourself and your background. How did Annie Murphy-Paul end up as a science writer working on human development, cognition, and social learning? And particularly, I'm always interested in like who are the people who came along in your life or what were the major sort of branches you know, that set you on this career path that you're on?
1: Yeah, gosh. Well, I was an American studies major at college, which was a major I didn't even know existed before I got to college. I assumed I'd be an English major because I like to read novels, but I found my way to, to American studies and to the interdisciplinary study of culture and society and literature and history and it turned out to be a very good preparation for being a journalist because especially the kind of journalism I do, which is interdisciplinary and drawing from here and there and seeing how science interacts with society. And then after college, you know, this is how lives unfold. I had a boyfriend who was my college boyfriend was going on to law school at Yale. So I wanted to stick around New Haven. And so I got a job at Yale's alumni magazine, which allowed me to interview. And profile all these Yale professors and researchers who were pursuing these incredibly interesting questions. And I realized that that kind of ideas journalism was, was the kind of journalism I wanted to do. And you you asked about mentors and influences. I had an editor there who had spent his career at newsweeklies and came back to New Haven to edit the alumni magazine as a kind of semi-retirement move. Um, but he had so much wisdom and and knowledge about how to write an article and he taught me you know very explicitly i really felt like i was almost an apprentice to him how to write an article you know one thing that i a technique that i still use to this day is that when i'm struggling with a piece i've i'm trying to write he told me to outline my own article you know so i could i can see the architecture of what i've what i've written and where it's going wrong I teach students at Yale now. I'm still in New Haven after 12 years in New York in between, but I teach students at Yale and I often tell them to out, like sort of reverse outline their own work so they can see the armature and see how it could be improved. So after that, I went to New York, worked at Psychology Today magazine, where I learned that beyond writing about ideas and Academic research, I specifically liked to report on social science research, psychology in particular, and cognitive science. And after that, I went freelance and have been a magazine writer and book author on a freelance basis ever since.
0: I am so fascinated by that writing technique. I've never Mm. heard anybody Mm. use it before. I, I remember having this very painful experience as a freshman in college where I, you know, I was, I had. I was a great writer and I had been editor of the newspaper in high school. And I was, you know, and then I got a really low score on the first paper I ever submitted in Mm. college. And I had to go like, find somebody to teach me how to write. And and they also said outline, but they never did the reverse outline, which Mm -hmm. would be Mm -hmm. so that would be kind of a humiliating experience. I would imagine in some ways like, oh, I can't believe, you know, I left that gap in my argument here. That's, That's a really terrific technique.
1: Yeah. It's, you could even see it as to touch on my current book that we'll be talking about as a kind of cognitive offloading because so much of writing we try to do in our heads and writing is such a complex Mm -hmm. undertaking. There's so many things going on at once that the more we can offload that process onto paper, the better, you know, and I think that's a kind of offloading.
0: Yeah. I always use the, I always usually just cop out when people say, you know, they need help learning how to write, and I just like I'm, I'm hopeless. I can't teach you. I can't teach you how to do that. That that's something that I learned intuitively. I came up in a in a time in which they literally stopped teaching grammar in in uh, elementary school, grade school, and so I don't know what the parts of speech are. I don't know how they fit together. I learned. I mean, I'm like a piano player. learned by ear or something, you know. So it's right. very difficult. Very yes. difficult to teach. So I just try to tell people to read good stuff, and then you'll eventually yes. pick it up. So, yes,
1: yes. Yeah. I should say that my editor, this one I'm talking about, he also had me outline, reverse outline other people's articles. Like he would take articles from Time or Newsweek and have me outline them so I could see how they were put together. Uh-huh. And uh, that, that's was, terrific. that was yeah. the kind of education in itself, too. Yeah,
0: that's terrific. That's great. So give us an overview of your book, The Extended Mind it's not the first time I've encountered that idea. I, a psychiatrist friend of mine always talked about, you know, you don't just think with your brain, you think with really your whole body, you've got to listen to your gut. So talk to us about The Extended Mind, the book, why did you write it? What are the major themes? And how does it fit with your other books? Because you're this is not your first time doing no. this.
1: No, this is my third book. My first book was a cultural history and scientific critique of personality testing, which also has a lot to do with the workplace. Uh, the second book was about the science of prenatal influences. And then this book, as you said, is about how we don't just think with our brains. I think they're all related. In my mind, they're very closely related because I'm interested in the question of what makes us the way we are. And the the traditional or the conventional answers never seemed very satisfying to me. So I keep looking for other explanations, You know, whether it's Escaping from this idea of personality and and the boxes that we put ourselves in, in terms of personality or this space between nurture and nature that is the nine months of, of development in the womb, or this idea that intelligence is not a lump of stuff that's in our heads. It's a dynamic process of assembling and reassembling thought processes out of the resources that are available to us. So, yes, the extended mind is actually it's not my idea. It's not my my originally my phrase. It was introduced by two philosophers, Andy Clark and David Chalmers in a 1998 article in a philosophy journal. And when I came across the article some years ago, it just made so much sense of a whole bunch of different research areas that I'd been interested in and I felt were related in some way, but I couldn't put my finger on how they were related. They were things like embodied cognition, this idea that we think with our bodies and situated cognition, the idea that we think differently depending on where we are, and then socially distributed cognition, the idea that we don't just think with our individual minds, we think with other people. And when I read this article by Clark and Chalmers about how, you know, the first sentence of the the article is, where does the mind stop and the rest of the world begin. And, you know, they pointed out the conventional answer, the the obvious answer is that the mind stops at the boundary of the skull. But actually, they said, no, you know, thinking is spread across our bodies below the neck and the physical spaces in which we learn and work and the minds of other people. And that's a much richer and more accurate view of how thinking actually happens. It's
0: fascinating. I said, You know, I said I was going to ask you about Ian Gilchrist's- and he he makes much this, the same observation about you know this idea that you know it's all limited to inside our skulls when in fact there's kind of no such thing as a human mind mm-hmm. alone and that when I, I asked him to condense all of his thinking into a short paper for me because his book is 680 very dense pages and it's an excellent book but you know it, you can't recommend it and you can't recommend <laughs> it highly enough because it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's just like if you're going to take it on, it's a big deal. But the title, when I asked him to condense the title, what he came up with is How Our Brains Make the World. Oh, um, interesting. Yeah. You know, it's like this idea of the brain almost reaching out and fashioning the world around us, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is really mm-hmm. consonant with with kind of your take as well. So what led you to write it?
1: Well, I actually had been pursuing for a number of years had been researching and writing about the science of learning, and that I confess emerged directly out of my own life. I have two mm-hmm. sons, and when I was writing about the science of prenatal influences, I was actually pregnant with my second son, and did all that research while I was while I was pregnant. And so, you know, then those those kids got older, went to school, and I just found myself fascinated by mm-hmm. the, their processes of learning, the way their teachers were teaching them, and and i discovered you know in a, from a professional point of view that there was this incredibly exciting and dynamic body of research around how we learn that was you know emerging at that time and i pursued that interest and found a lot of receptivity among readers who wanted to hear about the science of how we learn but i couldn't find the big idea about the science of learning that would allow me to write a book about it. Cause writing books is hard. And I find that I need some big, exciting, sort of potentially transformative idea to to get me through the slog of writing it. And the science of learning, you know, there is no, I what I came to believe was that there is no grand unifying theory of learning because the brain, nobody designed the brain to learn. You know, the brain is this kludgy, cobbled together patchwork put together by evolution to help us survive. And a lot of our problems with learning and thinking and motivation and attention come from the fact that we have this very quirky idiosyncratic organ and we're trying to apply it to this kind of work that it was never it never evolved to do. And so what I found interesting was the contrast between that reality which we grapple with all the time when we forget things or we get distracted or you know we don't feel motivated that reality we all know of working with this very limited and specific kind of organ and then the way the brain was talked about in popular science as this incredible amazing astonishing you know the most complex object in the universe you know which they're both true but i felt like there was room to point out to people that well the biological brain itself is is quite limited and very specific in what it can do and the way humans have been able to achieve such incredible feats of creativity and ingenuity is by transcending those limits by bringing in these other resources. But we don't, we have kind of a blind spot for the role those resources play in our thinking.
0: Gosh, that is fascinating. So, it's this cobbled together, not very well thought through? If you were going to design (laughs) it, you'd probably do it differently (laughs) than... (laughs) For
1: sure, yeah, right.
0: So, learning then, I mean, our, our learning strategies, it sounds like what you're saying, are they're basically adaptations to the limitations of the of the brain itself. So, what, what have human beings learned about learning mm-hmm. in that mm-hmm. process of kind mm-hmm. of like trying to apply this organ to mm-hmm. a task that goes beyond survival?
1: Yeah. I mean, this is what I spent many years looking into and what I kind of put together for myself, and maybe I'll publish this someday, but it was more like a collection of techniques than, as I was saying, than like a a big idea. And so these techniques that make learning more effective, these are some of the, this is what research has, has produced regarding the science of learning are things like, you know, what we remember things better when we repeatedly are exposed to the information over time, that is over intervals that are spaced out in time, you know, things like that. So those kinds of very specific techniques are useful and i think teachers and parents and students should know about them for sure but that doesn't address to me the bigger question of that that's kind of working around the edges of what the brain is and and who we are as as human beings i wanted to do something different which was to change our notion of what intelligence is or what what thinking well requires and so that's why i reached out to the extended mind.
0: So, throughout the book, you talk about our society, our workplaces, educational systems as being brain bound. What do you Mm -hmm. mean by that? Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's another borrowing from Andy Clark, the uh, philosopher uh, who is a really great writer on top of being a really sharp thinker. When he says brain bound, when I use the term brain bound, I mean that we identify the brain as the locus of thinking as the place where thinking happens and we imagine that the way to think effectively is just to work our brains harder and harder you know i think that's reflected in some of the popular psychology ideas that are familiar to people like grit or or even the growth mindset you know the idea is that the brain is like a muscle that if you just work that muscle harder and harder it will get stronger and you'll be able to think better and those theories have some value for sure i think but they're also limited in the sense that they they leave out these external resources that are so crucial to our thinking and they they leave students and workers without a knowledge of how to skillfully use those external resources and then they're left with just this with just this one strategy of kind of working the brain and this very almost punitive way sometimes like mm-hmm. sit there until you finish mm-hmm. the job mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. and that's mm-hmm. actually not how our brains work best um and it's not how thinking actually uh takes place
0: yeah that that whole idea of you know if i just uh, apply myself to the subject matter which i did say in math most of my life and never really got very far with it i mean <laughs> i had, i suppose i was maybe 10% better at the end of all that trying <laughs> but you know it i'm mm-hmm. not sure it was mm-hmm. the the juice is worth the squeeze Mm. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's really interesting that it sounds like we need to be you think we need to be a little more gentle with ourselves, with our brains, you know, that they aren't really they aren't muscles is what you're saying. They're
1: not muscles. They're not computers. They're as I say, they're they're this we're more like animals than we're like machines, you know, and that's Mm. something that it's easy to forget because these metaphors are so dominant. And, you know, especially this Brain is computer metaphor, which is embedded in our language and we use it implicitly all the time. The idea is that if you just feed information into the into the machine and then, you know, you get you get the output when really the brain, unlike a computer, is so context sensitive. It's so exquisitely sensitive to the place it's in, the people it's among. The physical state we're in, you know, and all those things need to be attended to if we're going to think well. And it's 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 very different from just sort of input output computer style thinking.
0: So this is a little bit off the path, but not too far. And I want so I want to ask it: Is have you given much thought to the topic of artificial intelligence?
1: <laughs> you know, what's interesting, I have not personally, but I've been very surprised and gratified since the book came out to hear from a lot of people who are working in artificial intelligence who say that what I've pulled together here is useful to them. So that surprised me. And it's more something I'd like to look into yeah. more, but not, not personally myself.
0: Yeah, I think that's fascinating. I think that there's a very interesting project going on It's out at Stanford right now on sort of, you know, the future of AI. It's interdisciplinary. They do everything from the arts to, you know, cognitive science, everything in between. But yeah, I think this would be a, a really great Add what you're talking about to their work. You know, it's interesting from my perspective on this. the This computer metaphor is problematic at so many different levels. We're using our brains to create computers, but then they don't really look like computers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they don't they don't function that way. In fact, our our marginal utility as human beings relative to computers is that we're not like them, mm-hmm. um, you know. Mm-hmm. In terms of in the economics trade, it's called non-cognitive skills, absorbing all this diffuse input basically and integrating it into a response to other people in the world. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Going back to McGillchris, I mean, he talks about this in terms of brain hemispherics and how the left side of the brain is more attuned to detail and to use of tools. And, you know, and then the right side is more like outer directed and relational. And it's, he, like you roots this in kind of this evolutionary development of, you know, it's necessary. We need both things. We need to be able, animals need to be able to find their food without becoming food for somebody else. So they have to Mm -hmm. do two things at once. They have to be able to pick out the seed that's in among the grit in order to get to it while also looking for the predator who may be lurking there. And so you've got this battle between the, between the hemispheres or kind of a tug of war, I guess. And that in our current cultural and historical context, science has trained us to think of the brain as being a calculating machine. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, when it's mm-hmm. That's part of what it does, but it also has all, all of these other attributes. So, what do you make of the way that human beings interact with technology, with this idea that our brains are not computers, that they're kind of patched together bits and pieces, it's amazingly complex, and nobody really quite understands how it all works. But how do, what do you make of that? We've created a world that's so unlike who we are.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah that's right and then we try to apply our creation back to ourselves and it really it really doesn't fit yeah. and when we when we regard the brain as a computer we're kind of underselling both computers and brains because mm-hmm. computers do what they do very well brains don't do what computers do very well they do something different and that's where our value is as where our value lies as as humans uh, you know i always think of the example of If you have a memory that you want to, a piece of information that you want to remember, a computer will remember it exactly and precisely as it's entered. Our brains don't do that. And often that's to our detriment. You know, we forget an appointment or we forget somebody's name or something, but that piece of information can be elaborated and changed and transformed in our brains in ways that the the computer can never do. So it's important to be clear about the difference between brains and computers and to appreciate the virtues of each.
0: Yeah. And I think that's right. Instead, it feels, at least from a workforce development standpoint, which is where I live most of my life, I see people trying to keep up with computers or with technology, you know, and it's just, you can't do the things that a computer can do, but actually the computer can't do the stuff that you can do. So no. focus on what you can do, right, you know, Right. right.
1: And regarding artificial intelligence, I think that's what what the human brain does so well, it turns out to be exactly what is so difficult for robots or computers to replicate. Something that a four-year-old can do so easily is incredibly, we, we can't really, we haven't yet been able to program a computer to do that. And so that's sort of another way of looking at those respective strengths of the yeah. two entities.
0: Yeah, social cognition is the the big stumbling block for, I think, for artificial, I'm not saying you can't eventually get there. Maybe, maybe the computers will design themselves. That seems to be the latest trend is the, you know, the computers will figure it out on their own, how to, hmm. how to machine learning. What does it mean to be interest, interceptively <laughs> aware? Sorry, it's a hard word. Go ahead. It
1: is. It is. Yeah. So, interoception is this very, Technical word for something that we're all familiar with, a phenomenon that we're all familiar with, which is gut feelings. You know, this, this sense that sometimes you know things, but it doesn't seem to be coming from your conscious mind. It seems to be arising from your body. And in fact, you know, just as we have these sensors that that bring in external information from from the world, like you know, our, we smell things, we look, see things, we hear things we're also, the brain is also being sent this continuous stream of information from within the body. We have these sensors located all through our bodies and that gives us a sense of how we're doing in the moment and also a sense of what we need to do to re- maintain a sense of, of balance. It's really crucial to our to our survival, you know, but in our culture, again, this is going back to that idea that we're very brain bound. We're very brain bound culture. We're often encouraged to ignore or suppress those internal signals especially when we're trying to do some complicated cognitive work like oh just just push mm-hmm. those bodily feelings aside power through you know like work mm-hmm. your brain as if you only exist from the neck up and what i wanted to argue in in my book is that actually those interoceptive cues carry a lot of wisdom and a lot of information that is otherwise inaccessible so it it pays it it pays off there's a, a big benefit to becoming More attuned to those internal. uh, So, how
0: how have you seen that play out in your own life?
1: Well, I have become a lot more attuned to my internal signals because, you know, it's all me search, right? This. (laughs) (laughs)
0: It's courageous of you to say that. Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) One place where I see it showing up actually is in social interactions with other people that. I was fascinated by this this research that I describe in the book what, that talks about how when we're speaking to people, we we automatically and unconsciously and very subtly mimic their expressions and their postures and their gestures. And then we read off our own bodies, how to get a sense of what they may be feeling. And to me, it's really beautiful. It's like, you know, two people have no direct access to what's going on in each other's minds, but we do have this conduit for sensing another person's pain or emotion or feeling through our through the vehicle of our own the channel of our own bodies, and I I was interested to learn that um, psychotherapists are actually the champions of this. They are actually trained to pay attention to what's go- coming up in their own bodies as a reflection of what their patient is feeling and maybe not able to say or to put into words. So socially, I've found that tuning into my interoception allows me to have a more accurate and subtle sense of what the other person may be feeling.
0: So how does somebody go about developing that kind of capacity for themselves?
1: Yeah, there's a few different exercises that we can do to become more interoceptively aware. One is what's known as the body scan, which is a component of mindfulness meditation, where you kind of go through your entire body part by part you know kind of paying open curious non-judgmental attention to whatever is arising in each part of your body another is what's known as affect labeling which is putting a name to what you're feeling and but just just a name just a label just you know my heart is beating or my heart is beating fast or you know i feel butterflies in my stomach and what's interesting about that is that those Basic bodily sensations are the building blocks from which we construct emotion. And when we tune into just that that bottom level of like, well, what am I physically feeling? We can actually get in on the ground floor in terms of constructing that emotion and say, construct a feeling of excitement and and alertness and, and being feeling energized and ready for for a challenge rather than feeling nervous you know which is what we might automatically go to when we feel those physical sensations arising but actually the those two states are physiologically identical it's really just the meaning that we're putting on them that is different and so when you're when you get back down to the sort of nitty gritty of the physical feelings, you can have greater influence on what emotion you actually are feeling.
0: Terrific. I know this is true. You Mm -hmm. know, I just know from my own life, you know, like feelings of anxiety are deeply rooted. And so we label them as anxiety when they could just as easily be labeled anticipation or Mm -hmm. excitement or
1: Mm
0: -hmm. something positive rather than, oh, here I am anxious again. Right. Right. Tell us about thinking with movement.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is another challenge to the brainbound conception of thinking, right? Which which would have us sort of thinking doing our mental work by sitting while sitting still at our desks, or you know, how students are expected to sit still at their desks and think and work until the task is done. Actually, you know, the human body evolved to be moving, e- even if only slightly in, in these with these sort of micro movements all the time. And to inhibit that urge to move actually consumes some mental bandwidth in itself. So, you know, and that's less brain that you have to apply to, to whatever the task is before you. So, you know, there's there's a bunch of different ways to address that. One would be working at a standing desk or a treadmill desk. Even a standing desk, you're kind of adjusting and move, shifting from one foot to another, you you know, able to move a little bit more than, than when we're sitting, or it could be shifting from... Meetings where you're seated around a conference table to walking meetings. There's also some interesting research about making your movement actually connected to your thinking in a more explicit way. And that could happen in the classroom, for example, by having students act out a scientific process or embody it in some way with their own bodies. You know, we're so much more apt to understand and remember something that we've experienced with our bodies than just words that kind of. Can come in and and exit, you know, and not really make very much impression. But when we when we've acted something out with our own bodies, it's a quite different experience.
0: I spent some time down at St. John's College in Annapolis. I don't know if you're familiar with it or not, but it's mm. a, a great books program. Everybody reads the same thing for four years. I mean, you're just it, it's and it's all taught in the seminar style where you're mm. sitting around these tables and this idea of thinking with movement was really present when i sat in on these seminars i mean it was you know people weren't doing like explanatory dance or something like that but mm-hmm. they were they would get started on a question dealing with a text and everything is very text focused you know and that the paper that w- that they were discussing was from the 18th century i think on whether light is a particle or a beam or something like that, you know, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and so the tutor just throws out throws out a question, and then he just sits back and he just waits, and it mm. these these pauses can be so painful because you're sitting <laughs> yeah. there, you're just you, you know, it's like we're not it's not what we're used to in learning at all, which is the, prof- the professor telling you and you taking notes, and maybe you get to ask a question, but he just asks the question and then they started talking and the conversation began to build momentum, you know, as they talked. And pretty soon they were getting into some ideas that words are really failing, you mm. know, in mm. order to convey the thought, you couldn't mm. convey it with thought or with words alone. Mm-hmm. You had to have another vehicle, you know, yeah. to do that. And so they would They started to get up and they started to draw their ideas on the chalkboard, Mm -hmm. you know, like, Mm -hmm. this is what I'm saying. This is Mm -hmm. what I have in my Mm -hmm. head that I'm having trouble articulating. And I just found that so fascinating, you know, like this is, there are some concepts which are very real, you know, it's, they aren't hard to articulate because they aren't real. They Mm -hmm. are hard to articulate Mm -hmm. because they are more real than what we're Mm -hmm. used to dealing with almost. Mm. But yeah, I, I just I think there's really something to that that we in the learning process, and we see this in workforce development too, you know, it's like contextualized learning. Mm-hmm. You don't want people sitting in a classroom, you want them doing, and then you want them having to do the things that they actually are going to have to do rather than just conveying, you know, this is a screwdriver, and what you do with it is you turn it like that. You know, right. and it's like, right. no, here's a screwdriver. Go over there and do that. Try you know, it. That kind of, yes. yeah, right, yeah. Right, right, right. You know. So it's been fun talking with you because you use so many gestures, even I on Zoom. I do.
1: I do. I know. Do. And I know. It's, it's always nice when you're reporting and research affirm something that you already do anyway. <laughs> yeah.
0: I and, and I find myself doing that as well. And I, even on just conference calls when there, nobody can see me, I'm still doing this. But talk about thinking right. with gesture. That was another. Chapter of what of your work?
1: Yeah, well, I was thinking about about gesture when you mentioned the students at St. John's getting up and drawing a diagram on the board because that's effectively what gestures do. They are like Barbara Traversky, who is a cognitive scientist at Teachers College, says that gestures are like diagrams we draw in the air with our hands, and they serve the, some of the same purposes, which is they offload some of our mental burden. You know, mm-hmm. some of our our cognitive load because we transfer them to to our hands and they express relationships that often are very hard to capture in language you know relationships between things or spatial concepts one of my favorite findings about gesture is that often our most cutting edge or our most advanced or our newest ideas on a topic show up first in our hands and it's like before we can capture something in words before we can really find the words for this emerging idea, our hands can can grasp some as and express some aspect of it. And then we can sort of read off our own hands. It's this like self-generated information that we can then incorporate into that emerging verbal explanation. So the idea that our hands are actually a few steps ahead of where our conscious minds and our verbal language are to me that's just fascinating.
0: Yeah, that is super fascinating. Yeah, this idea that we don't know what we think until mm-hmm. we until it emerges and then we hear ourselves and then we know that we know it, you know, that right. that kind of thing. That is mm-hmm. that's really super interesting. I'd love to go through chapter by chapter in the book because mm-hmm. I think there's just so much in it that's useful. We don't have time for that. But I did want to try to see if you can condense the chapters on experts, peers and groups mm-hmm. because We're an expert-driven culture. You're on this call because you're an expert. But yeah, talk about different ways of thinking with experts, peers, and groups.
1: Yeah, well, all three of those chapters, I hope, present a challenge to this brain-bound model of thinking that says thinking is done individually, you know, within the bounds of an individual brain. We do it alone. We, If we really need to do some serious thinking, we have to go off by ourselves, you know, when really humans evolved to think in groups, to create something like a group mind, which has taken on some very negative connotations in our own time. But especially as our our world becomes more and more complex, our expertise becomes more and more specialized, our problems become more and more daunting. We actually really need to think together to get the work done. So those three ways that I broke it down in the book are thinking with experts, first of all, with where, and the challenge there is, as you say, we're an expert focused culture. We, in almost every scenario, we're having experts teach novices. That's, that's the model by which we arrange education and workplace training. But there's a problem inherent to that arrangement, which is that experts, by virtue of being experts, no longer really have access to what they know in a way that they can articulate it for the novice because they're knowledge has become automatized. It's become submerged below consciousness. And that's how they're able to do what they do so effortlessly and easily and expertly. You know. So, But then when we ask them to turn around and teach novices who are at a very different place cognitively, experts can't really or often don't articulate in a way that, the, that is useful for the novice what they know. So that chapter is devoted to ways that experts can Put themselves back in the shoes of novices that they can break down the knowledge that they have spent many years kind of consolidating and chunking so that novices are better able to, so that we can better affect that transfer of knowledge from the expert to the novice. The second yeah. chapter in that section was about thinking with peers. And, you know, that again, focuses on how important, how, how essentially social learning is and thinking is. And that again, in our brain bound culture, we tend to think of socializing as something we do after work or after school. And we push it aside as, you know, well, socializing is over now, let's get the real work done. And my point in that chapter was to say, no, let's take these social activities like storytelling and teaching others and debating and arguing with each other's with each other and leverage those to in the service of learning or working and, and make school and work more social in the way that we can put it back into the heart of the activities that we're, we're undertaking in those places. And then finally, uh, thinking with groups, you know, again, we need to figure out how to effectively and efficiently enter into the state of, of having a group mind where. All the contributions of the individuals, they end up being greater than the sum of their parts while still guarding against the dangers of, of groupthink. And I think that's, it's difficult, but it's absolutely necessary for us to learn how to do that.
0: Mm, interesting. I, particularly on thinking with peers, I mean, it, it just feels like that is, especially on the learning side, on the education side, that that is so critical that the social nature of learning. Mm-hmm. and because we're in this brain the brain is a computer and all you got to do is download information to it and you're that's what constitutes education that is one of the big barriers that i see in terms of sort of developing a workforce that can actually meet the demands of the economy mm-hmm. you know because as we talked about already automation is taking over all the stuff that you don't have to think too hard to do it's just repetitive this has been going on for decades now but you talk to employers and what they say they need and they'll give you 10 things and eight of them have to do with interacting with other people Um,
1: yes yeah that
0: we don't spend time actually educating for that Mm -hmm. you know for Mm -hmm. that for that skill Mm -hmm. not not a particular knowledge per se but a skill for acquiring knowledge, a skill for engaging other people to share knowledge. Mm-hmm. So I, I just think that that from a, when I think about my own work on skills development, I, this mm-hmm. is right right at the center of it.
1: Yeah, instead there's an idea that in order, you know, at least during our, our nation's obsession with accountability and standardized testing, there was the mm-hmm. idea that what students needed was more seat time, you know, more right. sitting, more learning. When really more interaction, more dynamic sort of communication among students is what our economy is calling for.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so you can't have a conversation these days without talking about the pandemic and (laughs) the uh, almost completely flat and abstracted world that we've entered into um, over the last year where we are doing what you and I are doing right now, which is having a conversation over Zoom which is very fruitful and productive in many ways but since you've been thinking about this what what do you see as the pluses and minuses or that have arisen out of this social distancing that we've had to live with for the last 15 months
1: yeah yeah well it was very interesting to have a book come out at I was going to say what what we thought was the tail end of a of a pandemic. Of course, it's yeah. you know it's not over. We're, we're yet. <laughs> done.
0: We're done with a pandemic. It's not done with us. <laughs> no. um, yeah,
1: because what had preceded the date of my publication of the book, which happened in early June, was like this vast natural experiment of you know everybody kind of being brains in front of screens for a year or more, and I think to the extent that there's been a receptive reaction to a response to my book. It's, I think it came at a moment at which people were really ready to acknowledge or to recognize that there are these mental extensions, the body, you know, using your body, moving around, visiting new and stimulating places, interacting with people in person that really have a very, an enormous influence on our thinking. And and it was when we were stripped of those things that we realized that we weren't, we weren't really thinking many of us have felt during the pandemic, like we weren't quite up to speed in terms of how well we were able to think. And there were people who said to me, like academics who were no longer able to go to their offices for some period. And they had all their, all their books arranged in a certain way in their offices that they were no longer able to access. And somebody in the situation said to me, I feel like I'm cut off from my extended mind because I used to be able to look around at my shelves and get an idea or pull pull a book down but the actual physical space and the books arranged there organized his cognition in a way he now had no access to so i think the pandemic has made us realize how important those mental extensions are and they've made them visible in a way and by their absence and we've had to realize how very limited the biological brain is on its own and and how often it fails us i hope that as we Do return to offices and we do return to maybe something like normal life that will have a a better and a more accurate sense of, of the importance of those mental extensions and the importance of knowing how to use them skillfully.
0: Knowing my own life as something of an introvert, I appreciated the extra time alone during the pandemic. And yet I also know that it is parts of me have gotten weaker as a result, you know, like the part of parts of me that. Or, like, you know, you really need to get out and interact with people because you enjoy it, it's good for you, and it makes you exert parts of your personality that that aren't mm-hmm. there. I had a conversation the other day with some, he's very high up at IBM Human Resources, and talking about, you know, a major company kind of rethinking what its office layouts are going to be like in the future with remote work to one degree or another, of one type or another, is going to be with a lot of people, a lot more people mm. than it used to be from, mm. from now on. And he talked about how, you know, they're they're really rethinking, like, what do they want their spaces to look like? Mm-hmm. You know, they want more pure cubicles and more, like, group spaces where people mm-hmm. work, can work together, because that's the one thing that, that really, I think, has been... There's some evidence for anyway that 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 has been inhibited, the creative processes, the innovation that occurs when you get a group of people together working on a, a problem. So,
1: yes. Yeah, I think we could see this as an opportunity. You know, this kind of disruption doesn't happen very often. And it's an opportunity for us to look at the spaces and the arrangements that we had in place before and see if they were really working for us. And if not, reinvent them in a way that is evidence based.
0: And the office was invented for a reason, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it was, it created this social networking opportunity that wasn't otherwise available to people by putting them in close proximity to one another so that you could have all this rapid fire communication that would otherwise take a lot longer. And so the office, it's hard to tell where it's eventually going to land, but it's hard to imagine a world where we actually try to do everything forever on a virtual basis. Just, I,
1: I don't want to live in that world. No. <laughs> you know, it, it may be that alternatives to the traditional office arise. Yeah, we'll have yeah. like neighborhood-based working spaces, you know, something like that. But, you know, human nature did, was not changed by the pandemic and humans need to interact with each other in person to really get all the benefits from that kind of thinking with other people that I don't think happens as well virtually.
0: I'm just curious, do you do consulting work with people on this topic?
1: I do, with with companies and with schools. And I, I am seeing an increasing openness to this mm-hmm. idea that brain-bound thinking has its limits and that learning how to use the body, learning how to arrange spaces, learning, certainly learning how to arrange our interactions with other people. And I, I really liked your point earlier, Brent, about developing skills for interacting with other people. I think there's also something we could do around structuring in a very intentional way, our moment-to-moment interactions with people. Because the way we do group thinking now is often just to throw a bunch of people into a conference room and say, you know, come up with a good idea or solve this problem. Whereas in some industries, and I see these industries sort of leading the way for the rest of us, very structured forms of, of communication have been implemented. I'm thinking of the way that airline pilots talk to each other or the way that computer programmers who sometimes work together in very integrated ways, like pair programming, where they're they're literally thinking together at the same Mm -hmm. time, like they've had to develop these incredibly structured ways of communication because their work involves life and death, or it's really so cognitively complex that it it demanded this kind of intervention. But I think the rest of us could learn from that, that kind of structure instead of just letting it be a free-for-all which often doesn't produce very impressive results.
0: yeah I'm just trying to imagine what that would look like as you're talking about it I was thinking about those you can see them on YouTube these simulations of a Minuteman missile silo where you've got mm-hmm. two officers who have to coordinate everything that they do and they're they're not looking at each other but they they've got a checklist in front of them and they're talking mm-hmm. to one another as they as they go through this mm-hmm. checklist we're mm-hmm. doing this now we're doing that now. Mm. But I'm really curious as to what what it would look like to try to bring more structure without overwhelming the benefits of of spontaneous interaction.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. I think it would have to be almost like a bespoke kind of, you know, for each industry and maybe each firm or each team, you know, would have to work out their own way of making sure, for example, that every member of a team is heard from instead of just the leader and then everybody else kind of parrots what he says, you know, there are structured ways of approaching running a meeting, for example, that, that ensure that the individual contributions of each member are, are heard from.
0: Well, that is a very good note to end on. Annie Murphy-Paul, this has been a fascinating conversation. I'm looking forward to reading the rest of your books because this one was so great, especially the in utero development one. I think that that's uh-huh. a special interesting topic. Maybe we can have you uh-huh. back for another conversation about sure. that. So thanks so much for your work and what you're doing to help better equip us as human beings to do the things that we have to do in life. Thank you for joining me on
1: Hardly Working. Thanks, Brent. This has been a really great conversation. I appreciate it.
0: Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orrell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.